All right, we're, we are in the middle of Advent, and uh, if you don't know what Advent is, I did not grow up in the Advent tradition. Advent is simply the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and we celebrate these specific words each week. Last week was hope. This week is love. We light candles, symbolically. My laptop is nervous around these candles. And Advent sort of has this look back and look forward motion to it. Advent, the word, literally means the arrival of someone noteworthy. So when someone noteworthy arrives, that's Advent. And in the Christian tradition, Advent means the arrival of Christ. So we look back at Christ's arrival. He came. And we look back on it. How does that inform our hope? How does that inform our love? But we don't just look back there. We look ahead because he promises what? He's going to return. How does that inform our hope? How does that inform our love? And so you'll feel that motion today. And if I had one objective today, as we talk about love, trying to narrow it in, my goal when I drink water on this mic is that you don't hear me swallow the water. It's like my least favorite thing when you can hear a pastor drink. I can tell that was not interesting. (laughs) I saw the faces like, like, abort, abort. Um, Objective for love today. I want to tweak our default definition of love. I just want to like shift what comes to your mind, what you see in your mind when you think about love. We're going to get into some obedience stuff, but that's not my main objective. I think the main objective is to tweak our understanding. When we talk about love, what is that word? What does it mean, especially according to Scripture? And I'm going to start with a story that I called Build a Soulmate. You guys ever seen a -A Build-A-Bear? That's what I'm doing there. Okay. Build a soulmate. One of the privileges I get as a pastor over a a demographic that is largely in their their 20s, I get to to walk with a lot of people who want to date, who are dating, and often asking questions. And there's one question that comes up, whether directly or indirectly, which is, do soulmates exist? Now, I don't often get asked that question, but I do get asked questions like, is that, is that the one? Is he the one? Is she the one? Is this the person for me? Which is a super loaded question. And you could rephrase it. Is this the one that God predestined before the world began to put on this earth and marry me? It's like, well, that's pretty weighty, isn't it? And it's a complicated answer. If I'm giving my take, I'm not saying this is according to Scripture. My take would be it's a yes and no. It's a yes in the sense that God's omniscient. He knew who you'd marry. He knew if you'd be married. And if you marry that person, he knew it'd be that person. So in that sense, it's the one. But in another sense, there is no the one. The one is the one you choose to love. My hot take is any love that does not come with the weightiness of choice, of giving your life away to that person forever, is cowardly and weak and not really worth your time. That's just my take. One thing I feel like I learned with Leah is that a soulmate, my wife Leah, is that a soulmate can be built. It took me a while to learn this, When I met her, she was kind, very low drama, gentle, sweet, thoughtful, 
And my instinctive reaction up until that point was, hold up, I want something insecure and hot and emotionally up and down. I want to question if she actually loves me like every day. Why? Because that's when I feel a lot, (laughs) you know? When it's going good, I feel it, you know? We're like arguing and then we're making out and it's like, man, I love this girl. (laughs) Another word would be toxic. (laughs) But that emotional roller coaster to me, I didn't know I was like this. I'm serious. Until I met Leah, I didn't realize I kind of had a problem. I thought love almost had to come with emotional volatility because emotional volatility makes you feel a lot, right? And I thought that lack of emotionally spiking up and down was a problem. Obviously, what I came to learn is it's actually the solution. It's a good thing. I learned that with Leah, our relationship was marked by the choice of being thoughtful, of being kind, of wrestling through the feelings of going, I'm seeing all these things that you're not, that I thought my wife would be, and I'm now making the choice to see what you are and encourage those things. And I'm noticing this pattern in my heart. The more I see what you are and how God made you, and the less I try to force you to be what I thought you'd be, the more I'm falling in love with who you are because I'm choosing something, right? The more I choose to deny myself or the more I choose to not win the argument for my sake but lose the argument for the marriage's sake, the more I'm, oh, okay. And let me tell you something. I have built butterflies. I thought butterflies were like, you get wooed into them. They just show up. No, you can earn those, I promise you. To those that aren't married, and you think they're mandatory every second of your relationship, and then if they're not there, you get scared. I have more butterflies in year four than I did when I dated Leah. It's incredible. And I'm not trying, this, this accidentally might sound like I'm patting myself, I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm telling, taking you through a journey. I had a very broken understanding, and I'm starting to see a little glimpse of the light in year four of marriage. I'm super wise now. I've <laughs> been married for forever. And what I want every person here to know, just about marriage, is it will never accidentally be beautiful. I have seen fairy tale marriages, I mean like written in Hollywood stories, turn to ash because they forgot how to love each other. It will not accidentally feel like it was predestined before time began. It will be as beautiful as you are willing to die to yourself for the other's sake. It will be as beautiful as you're willing to lose the argument for the marriage's sake. It will be as beautiful as you are willing to act out the love that you want to see exist in your marriage. That's how it works. And this is crucial that I help young couples understand this. I see that little, just that little star in their eyes, that twinkle, like, we're going to be perfect. No, we haven't talked about family dynamics and love languages, but we just love each other. I'm like, hey, let me talk to you for a second for real. Hey, hey, look at me, you know? Because two people choosing to live in the same house, being fully human forever, not having a mature understanding of what love is, can be treacherous, right? And in a city like Nashville, full of Enneagram fours, you guys love how you feel, and we can never possibly understand how you feel unless we look up your song on Spotify. In a city like Nashville, it is so important to understand that love in the Bible is far more bent toward action, action, than it is toward emotion. 
or feeling. And the good news is this should take some pressure off of all of us because emotions are fleeting, which makes loving people hard. But what if I told you love isn't primarily emotions? Should help us. Okay. There's a song by DC Talk. It's a band from the 1990s. They have a song called Love is a Verb, and they spell love, L-U-V. Don't know the strategy there. Probably to tap into the hip culture. You were wrong. Wrong. Love is a verb. That's what it says. <laughs> I made that for DC Talk. Shout out DC Talk. Love you guys. But it's true. Love is an action. Jesus was asked about the most important commandment, and he quotes this ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. This is in Matthew 22. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it kind of leaves you asking, okay, well, hold on. What's the most important, God or neighbor? And then Jesus obnoxiously responds, yes, right? Two sides of the same coin. And here's what's so cool about the love that Jesus is talking about. He's quoting a scripture from the Old Testament that was written in Hebrew. He's speaking it in Aramaic, a cousin language of Hebrew. The New Testament writers are writing it in Greek. What is forming the New Testament writers' understanding of the word love? They did not open a dictionary and study the word love and see what it meant in the original language. They simply had the life of Jesus to observe, which informed their understanding of what love was. Everything Jesus lived taught them what love was. Catch that sentence. Everything Jesus lived taught them what love was. I wrote down, love is dealt, not felt. And if you dealt it, they smelt it <laughs> and felt it. And then I said it on Thursday at my teaching meeting, and it didn't go well. And then I said it here, and it did not go well. All right. You ever heard someone say, God loves you? God loves you. You ever felt, how do you know? You talk to him? You know? Like, how do you know God loves me? You ever had that season? You know, it's just like, how do I know? How do we know God loves us? What does that look like? We overthink it. In John 3, 16, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he what? Wrote a song? Went, oh my gosh, <laughs> I just love you guys. <laughs> no. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. That's how you know. You can't pretend to do that. For God so loved the world. He loved you so much, he sent his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus loves you. How do you know? Because he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Philippians 2. How do you know? Because of what he did. John 15, 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You can say I love you with a smile and be lying through your teeth. 
You can hug someone and not have love for them. Some of y'all have been too cowardly to break up with someone and you kissed them and you didn't even love them. You can fake that. You cannot fake die for somebody, <laughs> okay? That's when it gets exposed. You know what? Never mind. I'm just going to say it. I don't love you. If that's, I can't. Sorry. It's over. Jesus goes, you know I love you because I gave my life for you. Jesus loves you. This is why the ministry and the legacy of Christ is so powerful because he lived a love. He did not just talk about it. He does it. It's really, it's just crazy what he does. I thought about the children. He says, let the children come. He doesn't just teach a teaching. Children are amazing. We should really listen to, to children more. We should make more space for children. Everyone gets all excited. Woo! No. When the children are trying to come to be prayed over, the disciples of all people rebuke the children from coming, communicating to the kids, hey, you're too, hey, not yet. You're too young. You're too naive. You don't understand. You're too loud. You're too distracting. Some of y'all that haven't accepted our kids' space yet are like, amen, they are, aren't they? Oh my gosh. And Jesus rebukes you. I'm kidding. <laughs> Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Doesn't stop there. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Imagine being a kid hearing Christ that day. Doesn't just say, no, 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 they can come. He goes, no, let them come. It's to people like this that the kingdom of heaven belongs. Surely we can hear that and go, I too was once a child. It must belong to me as well. There's power in that action of Christ, not just to tell us that kids matter and that heaven is for them, but to show them Come close. Let me put my hand on you. Let me pray over you. Let me bring healing to your life. Heaven is for you. Jesus didn't just preach loving the outsider. In John chapter four, there's a woman at the well. And as a Jewish man, he walks and approaches a Samaritan woman. And before he even speaks... Him being within an arm's length of this woman was already a sermon. Socially, they had no business, male to female, Jew to Samaritan, no business speaking to one another. But in his action, he speaks to her, gives her the gospel, turns her evangelist. She leads people to Christ, never doubting the love of the Father that had met her that day. And not just because she heard a sermon, but because Jesus approached her spoke to her, liberated her. Zacchaeus didn't just hear a sermon, that there was hope for even the most greedy and the most manipulative. There is hope even for the one that completely betrayed his own people, lower than dirt. No, he said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. I'm sharing a meal with you. We're not just acquaintances. We are friends. If you know the context, dinner in that day meant you are friends. You did not dine with people you were apathetic toward or distant from. There was intimacy involved in a meal. And he gets dinner with Zacchaeus. What does Zacchaeus do? Turns around and repays everyone he ever stole from four times what he owed him. He knew he was loved. 
He didn't just talk about loving sick people. He walked to them. He touched them. He put his hands on them. He prayed for them. He ministered to them. He healed them. But it wasn't just outsiders. It was enemies. I love preaching about loving our enemies. I hate loving my enemies. It stinks. But Christ gives his life up and he dies in such a way as he is beaten to a pulp, a crown of thorns shoved into his skull, his hands and feet nailed to a wooden beam. He cries out to God and says, full heart, as he struggles to breathe, Father, forgive them. If anyone had authority in that prayer, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And as he dies in the earthquakes, you know what a soldier cries out? Surely that was the son of God. The power and a love like that, that, was not, that is not merely human. God is involved in that. He loved his friends. It's so cute if you'll let yourself think about how Jesus was so thoughtful toward his friends. I had this simple thought. How often was Jesus thinking about his disciples? You ever do something thoughtful for somebody? Think about the process. It's kind of sweet. You start thinking about their personality, what makes them happy, and you come up with an idea. I'm going to do something for them. I'm going to leave them a little sticky note on the mirror. I'm going to get them flowers, write them a card, send them a Venmo, Baja on me. You know, just something sweet. I thought about Christ with his disciples. How often is Jesus walking with his disciples, encouraging his disciples, rebuking them to strengthen them, teaching them the ways of heaven? Think about how cool the disciples felt when Jesus would send away 5,000 people, 5,000 people, and then he'd go, hey, here's what my sermon meant. They were like, ooh, sick. See y'all, no, 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 he's just talking. Hey, y'all gotta get out of here. Go home, go ahead, Jesus. What, what were you meaning, you know? Like, they had special privileges. Christ was such a friend. What about when Christ is about to die, his last dinner with him? They get to the upper room, and there's no servant to be found to wash all the mud and sweat and dirt off their feet. The lowliest of servant supposed to come and clean their smelly, B.O.-infested feet in between their toes, ugh, it's disgusting. They're looking around. Who's going to do it? The disciples have been arguing. Who's going to sit at the right hand of Jesus? They ain't about to wash anybody's feet. They need everyone to know it's me. It will be me, <laughs> okay? So I ain't washing feet. I'll be at the right hand of the Father. Who does it? Jesus takes off the robe one by one, foot by foot, toe by toe, just scrubbing those feet clean. And it was gross, it was not poetic. It was smelly. What's Jesus doing there? I love you. My life for you. That is the love that we know in Christ. And it is only powerful because it was lived. He did it. That's why we're so wooed by it. He actually lived these things out. And he is coming back. He will do this again. And I was reminded of this passage in Revelation. It's chapter 21, verses three through four. 
Make this as real as you can in your mind, because this is literally going to physically happen. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be with his people. Woof. Thank you, God, for we would love to dwell with you. And God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. There is coming a day where the physical Christ, with plenty of time on his hands, eternity, will walk to each individual and with his rough, calloused, carpenter hands that aren't even that super comfortable when he brushes your cheeks. He will look at you and you will look into the purest set of eyes you have ever seen. You'll stare into those pupils and it will be purity and love. He will be beaming as he stares right back at you and he won't look away. He won't get nervous because it's been an awkward long stare. He's like, no, no. I'm gonna make you accept this. I love you. I do. And his callous thumbs, in my head, they're big old thumbs. Just a carpenter, you know what I'm saying? Big old broad shoulders. Dude's been in the weight room. And he's just like wiping away the tears. Hey, well done. Well done. Love you. Good and faithful servant. Well done. In that action, we will know that we get to just chill in the most perfect eternity and soak in the most perfect love that we will never know on this side of heaven with Christ. So where does that leave us in the in-between? Because in this in-between of Christ coming and coming again, we are the body of Christ called to be the hands and feet not just to receive his love, but to live his love. Love to us, but through us. And so I wanted to give us some pointers as we have to have this new understanding of a love that is action forward, that is shown through our hands and feet, through what we actually do with our time. So I wanna give some advice, okay? If we're gonna grow in a biblical love, first piece of advice, take the pressure off of how you feel. Take the pressure off. You ever thought about trying to love somebody? Especially when it's like your neighbor, not like one of your best friends. And you're like, man, I have to close my eyes and meditate for like an hour to even kind of like empathize with this strange neighbor of mine that talks too much. Like, how do I like, ah, how do I work up the feel? And it's always where I feel discouraged. I don't know how to feel good about this person. Dude, you do not have to. There's a moment where Jesus looks at Peter and goes, Peter, you wanna catch fish? Cast your nets on the other side. Peter says, Jesus, been fishing all night, buddy. Caught nothing. Believe it or not, I already used the strategy of putting the nets on the other side. Love what you're thinking though. Freaking carpenter. Gosh, I don't know what he's talking about. Then he goes, because you said so, 
I will do it. That's love. In my opinion, that's a high form of love. I don't feel like doing it, but because you said so, I'm doing it. Ask any parent. I want an obedient child. (laughs) Whether they feel like doing it or not, show me you love me by doing it. It's okay if you're upset. I'm just glad you did it. Thank you. You know what I mean? Take the pressure off of how you feel. Right now, you gotta think about this actively. There are people that you're struggling to love. You're struggling to have all your emotions like all like sweet and bubbly about them, but you don't have to struggle to love them. There are things you can do to love them. Feelings not required. Let your actions have more say. I kinda already got into this, that's number two. Let your actions have more say. In an effort to be a genuine person, Sometimes we refuse to act when it doesn't feel genuine. I would argue that's counterproductive. I believe we were made to act, and in acting, we teach our emotions where they belong. Like a child who needs to learn that screaming and crying will not get you that toy. Sometimes our emotions need to be taught. Raise your hand if your emotions need to be taught a time or two. Come on, y'all. Our emotions are the worst drivers of our lives. Find ways to love others despite your emotions and go to war with your mind. Do not let your emotions condemn you as you try. That's the thinking that has to stop. I literally was talking to someone. I've done this. Yeah, I was serving. I was doing all this stuff for someone else. I just didn't feel right. And I felt like my motives were in the wrong place. I'm like, dude, I love you. Thank you. I'm so glad. I'm so proud of you. You're overthinking it. Keep serving the person. They literally talked themselves out of serving serving someone who needed it because their motives were in the wrong place. I'm like, dude, let God work on your motives. Don't stop serving the poor. Keep serving the poor, dude. Like, that's a good thing you're doing, okay? It's a weird thing that's happening here. And I feel like the enemy is so good at just sabotaging us in whatever way is possible, whatever way he can make us not love our enemy, not love our neighbor, he will do it. Even if it sounds as sincere as, I don't know if my motives were in the right place. He just wants the action to stop. Stop spreading love. That's his goal. We gotta fight for that. Number three, pray as you love. Pray as you love, not as you feel, as you act. And pray, the people you're loving, not trying to love, the people you are loving through your action, pray for them. I've really been getting into this phrase. I love praying prayers that God loves answering. No one loves God more. No one loves, wait, hold on. No one loves people more than God himself. When we pray, God help me love them, and it'd be really nice if my empathy grew as I love them. If my emotions kind of help me out a little bit, because emotions can't be just like not included. I'd love it. Will you just help me like think about their story, think about their life, grow my compassion and my empathy for them as I love them. God will do this. He will grow some of those things that we associate with love as we love people. Last one. You just got to trust the process. Go and love people and trust this. Your heart will catch up. It will. Has anyone ever been on a mission trip? Has anyone ever went somewhere for three days, five days, seven days, whether it was across the country, across the continents, just somewhere else? And lo and behold, you got on a plane, you went somewhere else, you started serving people, and four days in, you started empathizing for them. You started loving them. 
You exchange emails and said, I'm ne- dude, we're going to be friends until you die. We're going to be friends until we leave this earth. And then a year later, you're like, yeah, I don't know what happened. <laughs> but you really meant it. I mean, you said it with your chest, like, man, I love you. I was so honored to meet you. And the, you know what happened? You just went somewhere and you served somebody long enough to start loving them more and more and more. Your emotions joined you, your compassion joined, your empathy joined. Just trust the process. Put yourself in position to love people. Your heart will catch up. Your mind will catch up. The Holy Spirit will honor and reward the time and the energy you give to your brothers and sisters. Whether this is your family, your friends, your neighbors, strangers, your enemies, seek to love them. And so I want to give you two things to reflect on this week, just in your private time with the Lord. First, take some moments to reflect on how much God loves you and apply this new angle, this new definition of love. God, thank you for loving me. What I mean by that, thank you for sending your son Jesus, thank you for showing me the character of God, the love of God, how you serve, how you care, how you include. Thank you. In my own life, thank you for doing this and this and this. Thank you for this person. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for this moment where I just felt you, God. You showed me you love me. Thank you. And then number two, ask yourself a simple question. How do people around me know that I love them? In teaching me this week, that was the question that Gentry posed. That was a brilliant way to think about it. Like, if I'm Leah, how do I know that Joshua loves me? And think through it. What does she see? How do I treat her? What do I say to her? Do my actions toward her communicate, I love you? Or is I love you my words alone? To the people that work at Publix, Go there every day. It's right by the office. So convenient. How do those people know that I love them? Spoiler, they don't. They do not at all. I do not talk to them. I do not look at them. You know what that sounds like? An opportunity. I'm, hey, I'm being real. I know. I've seen the power of what talking to one person for 30 seconds a day for a year can do. Publix is waiting for me to be a minister. Like all of us, not like a preacher, a minister. We're all ministers, co-ministers. It'd do me some good to sit with that question. Okay, they probably don't know. God, how can I do this? Show me how I can love them. All right, so for communion, I want to take some time to reflect as people individually in your own life. I think, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want you to reflect what did you just learn today? Or how are you processing this new understanding of love? To some of you, this isn't new. But how does this hit you today? How is this trying to shape your understanding of what love is? And as a simple exercise, who and how? Who is one person that you can love on this week? And what is one way you can do that? Sit with the Lord. He might have someone for you that you're not expecting. He might have someone for you that is super obvious. 
might be your roommates. Maybe you don't need to wash dishes with the joy of the Lord in your heart. Maybe you just need to wash dishes and then God's gonna help you have some joy, okay? Maybe you don't need to write a letter of encouragement to your roommate that you've been beefing with and you cannot stop beefing with because who in the world plays guitar at midnight? Maybe that letter doesn't have to be infused with a bunch of feelings. Maybe it just needs to be encouraging. But ask the Lord, who are you asking me to love on? And what's one way I can do that? Like today, okay? I'm gonna give us like seven minutes. We're gonna process this. I'll come back up. We'll see what happens after that.